Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Good to do communion with you guys. Let me tell you about, there's a gentleman in Atlanta, his, first, his name is Charles Stanley, he's the um, senior pastor of First Baptist Church uh, in Atlanta, as you imagine, it's a huge church. And uh, Charles Stanley tells the story of the best sermon he ever heard. But to understand that best sermon, you have to understand some context. Around 40 years ago or so, uh, Charles Stanley, when he came to the church, it was, it had, I guess it stopped growing or maybe it was even in declining in attendance. And as a middle-aged or middle-30 guy, he came in and, and started teaching, and God was using him in, in some really some fun ways. And so the church was growing rather rapidly. That growth was a threat to some of the people in leadership there uh, for some reason. And a number of the leaders, particularly a, a handful of people on uh, their leadership team would be called deacons. The, on the deacon team, they were trying to get Charles Stanley to leave. And they were conspiring in meetings to get him to do what they wanted him to do and to leave the church. Well, a lot of the church wanted him to stay, and so there was a, a, a considerable amount of conflict. Well, the conflict kind of came to a zenith um, one Sunday. This is a televised church. This is a big church in Atlanta, obviously. But it, it was a televised event. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of Baptist churches will have multiple people up on the stage sitting in these big chairs. And whoever is going to speak that day sits in the chair. And so somebody's going to do announcements. He sits in the chair. The person next to them is going to pray. They sit in the chair. And the senior pastor is going to preach. He's going to preach. So he'll sit in that chair. And so this deacon that had a particularly bad attitude towards Charles Stanley was sitting next to him waiting for his turn to come up and pray for the offertory and for the sermon. So he gets up out of his chair and then looks at Charles Stanley and then turns around, turns his back on everyone in the camera and starts talking to, to Pastor Stanley and then yelling at Pastor Stanley. And then, and then he punched him, punched him right in the face on TV in front of the church, in front of Charles Stanley's family, his, two, his children. Watch this happen. So I don't know how work is for you, but I mean, that, that's a bad day any way you look at it. So you have to know that if you, if you look at this story when Charles Stanley said, it was a very difficult time in my life. That's what he says. It was a difficult time in my life, maybe my most difficult time. It is a very difficult time. So uh, an elderly woman in the church, um, in almost 80 years old, called him and said, uh, Pastor Stanley, I'd like for you to come over to my house, and we can go to lunch, and then I'd like for you to come to my apartment. I want to show you something. So they went to lunch together, and she said, I want to serve you. I, want to, I, want to, I have a sermon to preach to you. And he said, he was obligatory. So he went to lunch, and they went to her apartment. And then he kind of, she squared his shoulders and put him in front of this painting and said, what do you see, Pastor Stanley? What do you see? And he says, oh, I, I know this painting. It's, it's famous. This is Daniel in the lion's den. She said, yes, right. What do you see? And so he I said, one, two, three. I see seven lions. Okay, but... What, what else do you see? Well, there's some bones that, were <laughs> that are broken and are stripped of all their meat. Okay. Is there anything else? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I see it's Daniel in the lion's den in a stone prison. And then she, she, she went around and she hugged him and she said, she said, boy, son, I want you to see that Daniel is not afraid because he's not looking at the lions, he's looking at his creator. He's looking at God. 
That's what I want you to see. And he turned around and hugged her and said, that is the best sermon I have ever heard. And he went away that day, and he just refused to be focusing on his problems and when instead would focus on the Lord. Now, there's a word for Daniel with his hands behind his back. The word is poise. And poise, P-O-S, is the kind of prefix in, in understanding the origins of that word. It means to pose. It means to stay still, like in a photo, while everything around you is moving. Posit, it means to hold a belief that holds you. It means to be steady, independent. This is good. It means to be independent of the circumstances all around you, to poise. It means that Daniel's lot was to spend the night with lions, but his choice was to be absolutely fixated, not upon the baritone roars and the growls of the lion, but rather to be fixated and enamored on the beauty of God, his Savior. That's what poise is. That's how one is to live. He lifted up his head and gazed upon God. That's a good sermon. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is a raw book. It just talks so much about real life. It, it, is, it is the diary of a genius king, and he tells it the way it is. And he's going to tell us today that if we're going to live in a world that looks like it has no captain and certainly no judge, then we must have poise. He's going to teach us how to live in the context of an enormous amount of raw data that might lead a person to believe that if there's a good God, he has no power, or if there's a God with power, he has no care. And he's going to tell us in chapter 8, we've been, this is our fifth week, we have two to go, and, and in chapter 8, he's going to help us. He's going to help us understand what we can understand, because the, the theme, one of the theme difficulties in the book is found in chapter 3, where it says that, that God has a be- made everything beautiful in its time. There's a beautiful plan that God has. And then God has put eternity into the heart of man, but, and and that eternity means I long to know that plan. But, it says, if you continue reading, it says that man cannot know the beginning from the end. He he can't, he doesn't have the capability, the capacity, the will, you know, the the horsepower, whatever, the mental um, intuition to know what the plan is. But we are called continually, pulled towards trying to make sense out of nonsense. What thing we're connecting dots that don't connect. And that is, in many respects, our curse. We are cursed because we're not God and we are not apes and we are stuck in between where we long to know meaning and purpose for certain things, but we can't know the whole meaning, the whole purpose, everything. We can't know everything about it. And so in this particular chapter, he's going to deal with the two things that, um, that we're fixated upon quite often, and that is unjust, the unjust triumphing and unfair consequences for people. The unjust winning and the unfair consequences. Let's look, first of all, at, at the unjust and their triumph. He says in ch- chapter 8, verse 9, I thought deeply about all that goes on under the sun where people have the power to hurt each other. What he's, what he's making a reference to, again, he's quite observant. He says, anytime you give someone power, 
they use it not for good, but they use it for evil. What is the bent of man? That, that, it could start right, in a junior high cafeteria, mean girls, right? They have such limited little doses of social power. Let's destroy other girls, shall we? Let's destroy our own friendship groups. Let's spin a bottle and see who we're going to hate for a week. And that's the way they live with their power. And then you, older, as you get older, you see people that have some sort of influence or office, and they, and they use that to benefit their friends and destroy their enemies. And then they become politicians, and they use the same thing in that context, not to serve, but to be served. And he says there's the, the, the bent towards using power for evil is perplexing to him. And then he says, if that, does, if that isn't all, what adds insult to injury is that you, you hope that someday it will be made, it will be brought to light. But he says, no. Even their funerals are talked, these people are talked about in pleasantries. Look at verse 10. He says, I've seen wicked people buried with honor. And yet, listen, listen to how extreme it is. And yet, they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are now praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. This too is meaningless to me. These people that use their, the wealth or power or influence they have, they ruin people's lives. They go in and out of the temple acting like all is good between them, their fellow man, and God. They have a funeral service in that very temple, and then they talk positively about them with a room full of people who they hurt. And he says, is this driving anyone else crazy? Could we go to a funeral where people would, would, would finally just speak not necessarily ill of the dead, but they would just speak truthful of the dead? Would that be so hard? It's, it's enraging for us to watch this happen again and again. Here's a story. You might have heard it about these two brothers, and they were filthy rich. And they used their wealth for two purposes. Uh, one, to crush people, and two, to hide the fact that they're crushing people. And, and, they never, and they had the whole Christian thing down. They never missed mass or church or whatever their expression of, of religion was. So they were the good Christian people, and they, and they involved themselves in the church. And the, the pastor there was an older man that was simple and a little too kind-hearted and didn't understand what was happening. Well, he died. And they had a younger man come in, and he was a little more shrewd and saw right through what they were doing to people. And uh, he was well-spoken and well-respected in the community, and so the church started growing. It all but doubled in size, and so they had to uh, add a building to their facilities, and they had to put a roof on their sanctuary, and they went into a fair amount of debt to make that happen, and no sooner did they sign uh, the bank statements that one of the two wicked brothers died. And so they're going to have the funeral uh, under the new roof of the place, and the night before, the night before the funeral, the surviving brother visits the pastor at his house and says, listen, um, I have something, a check. And it will pay off all the debt that you have for the new building and the roof on the sanctuary. But it has a string attached to it. It's a small one. But you have to say at my brother's funeral that he was a saint. And this is exactly what verse 10 is talking about, right? That uh, that that uh, that he would it, where's the where's the quote there that that he would be that he would be buried with honor in the very church that he committed the crime he would be buried with honor in the very church where he committed these crimes and so the young pastor thought about you know the future of the church and how being out of debt would be a big help to them and about his ethics anyway 
he said he agreed to it. So he said he'd do it. The next morning he wakes up early, gets to the bank when it opens, deposits the check, you know, cancels out all the debt of the church, and then goes on to the, the funeral from there. He starts the sermon off with pleasant trees about the deceased uh, man who had a wonderful wife and some beautiful children and had influence in the church. And then he said, evil, the, the evil of this man, the devil himself would look up to and admire. He cheated on his wife. He was abusive to his children. He was drunk before dusk. He stole from the poor. He hurt as many people as he could. A more terrible man you have never met. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) It's a joke, but it's one that we should tell more often. We should have it happen in real life. The problem problem with the, the... Uh, the difficulty that Solomon has and you and I are dealing with this every single day is is summarized in a single sentence, verse 11, where he says, when a crime is not punished quickly, people feel that it is safe to do wrong. Because God doesn't like lightning volt zap us right when things happen bad, when we make a choice to do something wrong. Because of that, one, justice is... Has failed us. And two, it encourages evil. And so Solomon's wondering if, if there's, a, if there's a, a God with power and he's good, this is a good time for a judge to show up. I mean, where's Judge Roy Bean? Right? You're just a hanging judge. Have, have it happen. Now, just in a, a more careful rec, uh, reflection on this, um, what, we, what we want is verse 11 in other people's lives, don't we? I mean, we want zap judgment for everyone else. I mean, it would be great if, if, if God had a, like a taser built into us where uh, it's almost like clockwork orange, where if you just had a thought, right, of lust or greed or jealousy or, or spitefulness or gluttony, I mean, you just, right? You just light up. We wouldn't get far out of bed. No, we wouldn't even make it in bed. So it's an impossible way to live for a lot of reasons, uh, human will being violated. Um, uh, we would not fear God. We would just fear electrocution, you know, the vaults, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of reasons why this doesn't happen, but, but we're hoping, wouldn't it be nice if, if God were to occasionally visit us in a more judicial way quicker? As one writer put it in a poem, he says, Truth is forever on a scaffold, and wrong is forever on the throne. Truth is forever hanging with a noose around its neck, and, and wrong is forever ruling. That's what it seems like is happening. And besides the lack of justice that takes place, then there's the second thing that bugs uh, Solomon, that you and, and, and we agree with that, and that is unfair consequences. Look at, look at verse uh, 14, and look, look how common it is to us. And And this is not all that is meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they are wicked, and wicked people are often treated as though they are good. This is meaningless. This is insane. It's crazy. Look what he's saying. Why why is it that good people are treated as though they're wicked? Now, I'll use an example here, and it's, it's, it's a bit dated because I wanted us to get some distance from it and be a little bit more objective. But... Can you recall the rage that people had towards Tim Tebow? And the reason I'm mentioning him now is because, okay, let's just forget if he, if he, what kind of football player he was. They weren't mad at his inability to throw a spiral. 
They were mad that he'd bent a knee in an end zone and just wanted to thank God for just a second. <laughs> he had a set of values and beliefs, and whenever he would verbalize those, they would, they would pounce upon it. His goodness was looked upon as evil. And then, by the way, there is no sin that a celebrity cannot turn into like a career. We, we look at, at various sins. We hope that we are videotaped when they take place so they can be celebrated and we can become famous. And, it will, and that we will be treated as though that were good. I would defy the writer of the Scarlet Letter to write the book today because the Scarlet Letter today would be V. Oh, look, a virgin. Make him or her walk the aisles in shame. Look at the person with virtue. <laughs> Stupid fool. And this is the life, again, this is like, like Solomon is looking on in our culture and wondering what, what, is, what has happened. And this is not just people. Solomon is observing that, that the universe seems to be having the same value. Every culture and every epoch has some kind of an expression that says, the good die young. Because we, intuitively, we, we believe that the good ought to be treated, well, good. And yet the universe seems to pick on them first and foremost. And Solomon, Solomon looks and says, this is, this is all meaningless. It doesn't make any sense. This will make you crazy the more you think about it. So what are you to do? How are you to live? How are you to think? I, what, what came to my mind in a lot of the reading that I was doing was um, Solomon might have been reading from his father. His father was David. He wrote Psalm 94. Look what it says. Listen to the title of God. God has many titles. And this is the title that God, that David calls upon uh, when he looks, like, oh, Lord, the God who avenges. Oh, look, he says it again. Oh, God who avenges. Shine forth. Come on. Let's go, God of avenge. Right? Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back the proud for what they deserve. How long are the wicked, O Lord? How long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All of the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, O Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien, and they murder the fatherless. And here's, they're, they're calling out your name. They say, the Lord, look at all caps, Jehovah does not see us. The God of Jacob pays no heed to our evil. So, so there is something within us crying out for, for justice to prevail. Where is it now? And so this meaningless, this senselessness that takes place in our everyday experiences, Solomon is saying, how do we, how do we live with all that? Verse 12 and 13. Chapter, chapter 8, verse 12, is in your bulletin. You take that home, you put it on your refrigerator, you memorize this. This is the difference between tranquility in life, maybe even joy in life, and frustration and rage. Here is the key. It's in 12 and 13. Look at verse 12 and 13. But even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, all we've talked about, I know that those who fear God will be better off. The wicked will not prosper, for they do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. 
There is no relief outside of verse 12. And verse 12 is not a kind of a closing your eyes and your ears and, and saying, blah, 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 I, I, can't, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to live in this fantasy world. No, verse 12, okay, even though the person sins a hundred times and still lives a long life, he continues or she continues to do it and gets away with it and continues to do it and gets away with it. And a hundred times is just an exaggeration. They just, they get away with everything and they live a long life and die in their sleep. He's saying this, I know that those who fear God will be better off. This is not fiction. It is holding on to, know, to what we do know instead of what we don't know. One thing remains. We sang that. One thing remains. We know this about God, that he will take a final accounting of things. They can do it a hundred times, a thousand times. They can live a life. That's not the end of the story. That is a very small part of a huge story. Look at verse 13. He says, and the wicked will do not prosper. They do not prosper. They do not fear God. For those who do, do not fear God, their days will not grow long like the evening shadows. The word there is Tommy Nelson out of uh, Denton Bible Church. The word is poise. Pose. Like you're standing still in the middle of a photo when everything else around you is swirling. It is to posit. It means to hold on to a value system, a set of virtues that hold on to you. It was Daniel's lot to spend the night with the lions. It was Daniel's choice to lift up his head, lift up his head and looked at the glory of God. He was enamored not with the baritone roars of the lion, but instead with the glory and the beauty of his Savior. That's what he chose to do with the lot that he was given. Poise. It is living independent of the circumstances and the data around you. It is a basketball player. You've seen this happen so many times. It's the difference between the mild and the excellent. It is the person that the game is tied. There's no time left on the clock, that sort of thing. He has one free throw to shoot. Win or lose the whole thing, it's right here. And, what, and what's going on behind the clear glass backboard? Every crazy has chosen to sit back there for a reason. These are the zany ones that are showing up. They're already drunk before they get there. They have got these big heads, right? They've got these wiggly balloons. They're flashing uh, bulbs at you. And the person with poise shoots the ball just like he did a thousand times in empty gyms with no one bothering him because he is independent of circumstances. It is a combat soldier that in a real firefight against a, 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 a significant enemy stands his ground, holds his position just like he did the thousand times back in the States when he was learning how to be a combat soldier. It is the person that was in a courtroom and they see justice does not prevail and the guilty person smirks at them smirks at them, and they put their head down, and they do what they always did a thousand times before. They pray a prayer. They put their hope in what is true, what they do know, not what they do not know. And when we see our, our, our leaders and our politicians make laws that they will inflict upon us, and they will hold us to it, and they have no intention of doing it themselves, we do what we always do. We know that, we, that people with any kind of authority will answer for their use and abuse of authority. 
And we'll hold to that. We'll do it just like we did all those other times. What do you see when you look at this painting? What do you see? Do you see seven lions, the seven things around your life that is trying to pull you into the storm? Do you focus on the bare naked bones that are broken on the floor thinking you'll be next? What do you do you lift up your head and focus on the one thing that remains? The promises of God are true. They they will not be voided by circumstances. Arguably one of the greatest leaders in American history is General Robert E. Lee. If you know much about his life, you know that before the Civil War took place, both the North and the South wanted him to be the commander of their armies. They both loved him dearly. After the war was over, both sides, the North and the South, wanted him to take over as much as they could. Instead, he humbled himself and served at his great-grandfather's, step-grandfather's university, Washington, and he became, later became Washington Lee University. He just wanted to serve the people. He was one of the few people in history of America that has graduated from one of the military academies without a single demerit. He said, the single best word in the English language is duty, poise, duty, faith. These are the things that hold you when the world is rocking all around you. If you can do verse 12 and verse 13, if you can believe those things, if you can have poise, if you can be steady, if you can be an anchor, if you can be a lighthouse in a storm of life, then you can experience the rest of this chapter. But you can't get there until you do 12 and 13. If you do 12 and 13, there's some things that you are to do and there's some things you're not to do, okay? Some things you can do and things you're not to do. If you do verses 12 and 13 and you know that the wicked will not prosper and the righteous will be rewarded, look at verse 15. And here he goes again. And so I command, the, so I commend you to enjoy life. I commend you to enjoy life because there is nothing better than for a person under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be glad. Then joy will accompany them to their toil all the days of their life that God has given them under the sun, the lot that God has given them under the sun. It's not denial of your difficulties. It's understanding your lot in life. It's understanding the cards that God has dealt you, and you're going to be okay with that, and you know the parameters of your lot, and you'll live within them. You are David living in a cave on the run from Saul. You are Joseph in a jailhouse waiting maybe to be remembered. You are Daniel in a lion's den. And you have lifted up your head. It is not pie in the sky living. It is knowing, it is believing in what you do know to be true instead of focusing on the things that you don't understand. You might not know what tomorrow holds, but you know who holds tomorrow. And while you're there in a lion's dead, you might as well rub a little cat's stomach and see if you can get him to purr. That's what he's saying. Enjoy life. Here's what you cannot do. Here's what you cannot do. Look at verses 16 and 17. And in my search for wisdom and all my observation of people's burdens here on the earth, I discovered 
that there is ceaseless activity day and night, and I realize that no one can discover everything God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything, no matter what they claim. The wisest people say they've spent all day on this, all night on this, and they have figured everything out. You know they're lying. No one can figure this out. God put eternity into our heart, but we don't know the beginning from the end. He has a beautiful plan. We just can't know it. We are to trust in God. We are to have poise. We are to have faith. If you are to enjoy knowing God, not knowing God's plan. It is trusting in his character, not in his execution of character. You are to have poise. And Jesus Christ is an example of poise. He is in the garden, and it is with great restraint. And it is his duty, it is duty that he has a conversation with the Father, and he says, Father, if you could just let this cup pass, I'll do what you tell me. And when he stands before, when he stands before Pilate, it is with great restraint. As Pilate tells him, do you know who I am? I have the authority to set you free. <laughs> and, he, and Jesus does not laugh. It, it, is, it is with discipline that Jesus stands before Herod and says nothing to that fool because Herod will die soon and he will die slowly. It was poise that had Jesus on the post because he knew that was his lot. That's where he was to be. That was the hand that he was dealt, and he would play his role. It was with indefinable boundaries of understanding of humility that Jesus, when he was on the cross, was mocked, you saved others, now save yourself. And he, he didn't have to say a word or raise an eyebrow. All he had to do was think it. And while a platoon would be more than enough to rescue him, he could have desired a corps of angelic soldiers to come and make a wreck of this, and we talk about it and name it Armageddon, but he, he didn't. And with great faith, he said, Father, I commit my soul. With great understanding of forgiveness, he said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. That's how we're to live. That's how we're to die. This doesn't make sense out of much, but this can make sense out of some. What if the purpose of our life was not to be a pampered princess, but a hardened soldier. What if this life is more to make us like a Navy SEAL than somebody with a manicure-pedicure thing? What if, what if this is purgatory, like this is? What if this is supposed to get us buffed and shaped and chiseled and corrected to make us perfect and get us ready for heaven? And all the things in between is a means of preparing us. What if this is the hard thing and the next life is when we're rewarded? Then, if that were to be true and we understood that that was our lot in life, 
if we understood that was the cards that we were dealt and we could live within the boundaries of that, we could be suffering soldiers, then I think that we would sing instead of cry and complain. We, we, could, we, could, we could survive instead of fail, and we could save others, bring them with us instead of leaving them behind. What do you see? Do you lift up your head? I think, I think it would be great to kind of end today's prayer with, why don't we just ask God to help us think about what we see when we're in the lion's den? Do we focus on the lions? And let's just ask God that he would cleanse us of that. And we, would call, we would call forgiveness to be needed for that because we kept our heads down in light of the truths that have been explained to us in his word and that we might be the sort of people that sing instead of cry, Okay. Let's pray that way. Lord Jesus, uh, <laughs> it just seems, it seems natural and it seems a lot easier to focus on lions uh, in a room surrounding us, our problems, uh, the injustice in the world, the difficulties we have, the guy who cheats that keeps lapping us in our careers, whatever it might be, it's just easier, Lord. And I, I would say, Lord, we are lazy. I am lazy. And because of that, I sin. I sin against you. I could lift up my head and see your greatness, what you have done, where I will spend eternity because of your promises. And I would focus on that and deal with the lions as they come. And if, if I'm a snack for those lions, then that's my lot, and that's your, that's your will for me. And I, I hope that I could, I could die praying for those people that are wicked. Lord, I'd ask that you would convict us of our, of our melancholy and our begrudging attitude when we could be dancing and eating and, and drinking and enjoying even our suffering. Lord, make that to be true in our lives, that we wouldn't try to make sense out of all this. We would just enjoy you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up, eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. 
The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.